Audio Renaissance presents Dune by Frank Herbert. Read for you by Simon Vance. With John Aline, Scott Brick, Kent Broadhurst, Alan Burrows, Orla Cassidy, Jason Culp, David R. Gordon, Jamie Heinlein, Byron Jennings, Patricia Kilgariff, Ileana Kadushin, Ewan Morton, Scott Sowers, and Oliver Wyman. Book One Dune A beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. This every sister of the Bene Gesserit knows. To begin your study of the life of Muad'Dib, then, take care that you first place him in his time, born in the 57th year of the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, and take the most special care that you locate Muad'Dib in his place, the planet Arrakis. Do not be deceived by the fact that he was born on Caladan and lived his first 15 years there. Arrakis, the planet known as Dune, is forever his place. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. In the week before their departure to Arrakis, when all the final scurrying about had reached a nearly unbearable frenzy, an old crone came to visit the mother of the boy, Paul. It was a warm night at Castle Caladan, and the ancient pile of stone that had served the Atreides family as home for 26 generations bore that cooled sweat feeling it acquired before a change in the weather. The old woman was let in by the side door, down the vaulted passage by Paul's room, and she was allowed a moment to peer in at him where he lay in his bed. By the half-light of a suspenser lamp, dimmed and hanging near the floor, the awakened boy could see a bulky female shape at his door, standing one step ahead of his mother. The old woman was a witch shadow, Hair like matted spiderwebs, hooded round darkness of features, eyes like glittering jewels. Is he not small for his age, Jessica? The Atreides are known to start late getting their growth, Your Reverence. So I've heard, so I've heard. Yet he's already fifteen. Yes, Your Reverence. He's awake and listening to us, sly little rascal. <laughs> but royalty has need of slyness. And if he's really the Kwisatz Haderach, well... Within the shadows of his bed, Paul held his eyes open to mere slits. Two bird-bright ovals, the eyes of the old woman, seemed to expand and glow as they stared into his. Sleep well, you sly little rascal. Tomorrow you'll need all your faculties to meet my Gomjabar. And she was gone pushing his mother out, closing the door with a solid thump. Paul lay awake, wondering, what's a Gomjabar? In all the upset during this time of change, the old woman was the strangest thing he had seen. Your reverence. And the way she called his mother Jessica like a common serving wench instead of what she was. A Bene Gesserit lady, a duke's concubine and mother of the ducal heir. Is a Gomjabar something of Arrakis I must know before we go there? He wondered. 
he mouthed her strange words, Gom Jabbar, Kwisatz Haderach. There had been so many things to learn. Arrakis would be a place so different from Caladan that Paul's mind whirled with the new knowledge. Arrakis, Dune, Desert Planet. Thufir Hawat, his father's master of assassins, had explained it. Their mortal enemies, the Harkonnens, had been on Arrakis 80 years, holding the planet in quasi-fief under a Chome company contract to mine the geriatric spice, Melange. Now the Harkonnens were leaving, to be replaced by the house of Atreides in fief complete, an apparent victory for the Duke Leto. Yet, Howard had said, this appearance contained the deadliest peril, for the Duke Leto was popular among the great houses of the Lanzrat. A popular man arouses the jealousy of the powerful, Howard had said. Arrakis, Dune, Desert Planet. Paul fell asleep to dream of an Arakean cavern, silent people all around him moving in the dim light of glow-globes. It was solemn there, like a cathedral, as he listened to a faint sound, the drip, drip, drip of water. Even while he remained in the dream, Paul knew he would remember it upon awakening. He always remembered the dreams that were predictions. The dream faded. Paul awoke to feel himself in the warmth of his bed, thinking, thinking. This world of Castle Caladan, without play or companions his own age, perhaps did not deserve sadness in farewell. Dr. Yui, his teacher, had hinted that the Falfreluche's class system was not rigidly guarded on Arrakis. The planet sheltered people who lived at the desert edge without Kaid or Basha to command them. Will-o'-the-sand people called Fremen, marked down on no census of the imperial regate. Arrakis. Dune. Desert planet. Paul sensed his own tensions and decided to practice one of the mind-body lessons his mother had taught him. Three quick breaths triggered the responses. He fell into the floating awareness, focusing the consciousness. Aortal dilation avoiding the unfocused mechanism of consciousness, to be conscious by choice, blood enriched and swift flooding the overload regions, one does not obtain food, safety, freedom by instinct alone. Animal consciousness does not extend beyond the given moment, nor into the idea that its victims may become extinct. The animal destroys and does not produce. Animal pleasures remain close to sensation levels and avoid the perceptual. The human requires a background grid through which to see his universe. Focused consciousness by choice, this forms your grid. Bodily integrity follows nerve, blood flow according to the deepest awareness of cell needs. All things, cells, beings, are impermanent. Strive for flow permanence within. Over and over and over, within Paul's floating awareness, the lesson rolled. When dawn touched Paul's windowsill with yellow light, he sensed it through closed eyelids, opened them, hearing then the renewed bustle and hurry in the castle, seeing the familiar patterned beams of his bedroom ceiling. 
The hall door opened, and his mother peered in, hair like shaded bronze held with black ribbon at the crown, her oval face emotionless, and green eyes staring solemnly. You're awake. Did you sleep well? Yes. He studied the tallness of her, saw the hint of tension in her shoulders as she chose clothing for him from the closet racks. Another might have missed the tension. But she had trained him in the Bene Gesserit way, in the minutiae of observation. She turned, holding a semi-formal jacket for him. It carried the red Atreides hawk crest above the breast pocket. Hurry and dress. Reverend Mother is waiting. I dreamed of her once. Who is she? She was my teacher at the Bene Gesserit school. Now she's the Emperor's truth-sayer. And Paul, you must tell her about your dreams. I will. Is she the reason we got Arrakis? We did not get Arrakis. Jessica flicked dust from a pair of trousers, hung them with a jacket on the dressing stand beside his bed. Don't keep Reverend Mother waiting. Paul sat up, hugged his knees. What's a Gonjabar? Again, the training she had given him exposed her almost invisible hesitation, a nervous betrayal he felt as fear. Jessica crossed to the window, flung wide the draperies, stared across the river orchards toward Mount Siobi. You'll learn about the Gomjabar soon enough. He heard the fear in her voice and wondered at it. Jessica spoke without turning. Reverend Mother is waiting in my morning room. Please hurry. The Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam sat in a tapestried chair watching mother and son approach. Windows on each side of her overlooked the curving southern bend of the river and the green farmlands of the Atreides family holding, but the Reverend Mother ignored the view. She was feeling her age this morning, more than a little petulant. She blamed it on space travel and association with that abominable spacing guild and its secretive ways. But here was a mission that required personal attention from a Bene Gesserit with the sight. Even the Parisha Emperor's truth-sayer couldn't evade that responsibility when the duty call came. Damn that Jessica, the Reverend Mother thought. If only she'd borne us a girl as she was ordered to do. Jessica stopped three paces from the chair, dropped a small curtsy, a gentle flick of left hand along the line of her skirt. Paul gave the short bow his dancing master had taught, the one used when in doubt of another's station. The nuances of Paul's greeting were not lost on the Reverend Mother. He's a cautious one, Jessica. Jessica's hand went to Paul's shoulder, tightened there. For a heartbeat, fear pulsed through her palm. Then she had herself under control. Thus he has been taught, Your Reverence. What does she fear? Paul wondered. The old woman studied Paul in one gestalten flicker. Face oval like Jessica's, but strong bones. Hair, the Duke's black. Black, but with brow line of the maternal grandfather who cannot be named. And that thin, disdainful nose, shape of directly staring green eyes, like the old Duke, the paternal grandfather who is dead. Now, there was a man who appreciated the power of bravura, even in death, the Reverend Mother thought. Teaching is one thing, 
The basic ingredient is another. We shall see. The old eyes darted a hard glance at Jessica. Leave us. I enjoin you to practice the meditation of peace. Jessica took her hand from Paul's shoulder. Your reverence, I... Jessica, you know it must be done. Paul looked up at his mother, puzzled. Jessica straightened. Yes, of course. Paul looked back at the Reverend Mother. Politeness and his mother's obvious awe of this old woman argued caution, yet he felt an angry apprehension at the fear he sensed radiating from his mother. Paul, this test you're about to receive, it's important to me. Test? He looked up at her. Remember that you're a duke's son. Jessica whirled and strode from the room in a dry swishing of skirt. The door closed solidly behind her. Paul faced the old woman, holding anger in check. Does one dismiss the Lady Jessica as though she were a serving wench? A smile flicked the corners of the wrinkled old mouth. The Lady Jessica was my serving wench, lad, for fourteen years at school. And a good one, too. Now you come here. The command whipped out at him. Paul found himself obeying before he could think about it. Using the voice on me, he thought. He stopped at her gesture, standing beside her knees. See this? From the folds of her gown, she lifted a green metal cube about 15 centimeters on a side. She turned it, and Paul saw that one side was open, black and oddly frightening. No light penetrated that open blackness. Put your right hand in the box. Fear shot through Paul. He started to back away. Is this how you obey your mother? He looked up into bird-bright eyes. Slowly, feeling the compulsions and unable to inhibit them, Paul put his hand into the box. He felt first a sense of cold as the blackness closed around his hand, then slick metal against his fingers, and a prickling as though his hand were asleep. A predatory look filled the old woman's features. She lifted her right hand away from the box and poised the hand close to the side of Paul's neck. He saw a glint of metal there and started to turn toward it. Stop! Using the voice again, he swung his attention back to her face. I hold at your neck the Gondrabar. The Gondrabar, the high-handed enemy. It's a needle with a drop of poison on its tip. Aha, don't pull away, or you'll feel that poison. Paul tried to swallow in a dry throat. He could not take his attention from the seamed old face, the glistening eyes, the pale gums around silvery metal teeth that flashed as she spoke. A duke's son must know about poisons. It's the way of our times, eh? Musky to be poisoned in your drink, Almas to be poisoned in your food. The quick ones and the slow ones and the ones in between. Here's a new one for you. The Gomjabar. It kills only animals. Pride overcame Paul's fear. You dare suggest a duke's son is an animal? Let us say I suggest you may be human. Steady. I warn you not to try jerking away. I am old, but my hand can drive this needle into your neck before you escape me. Who are you? How did you trick my mother into leaving me alone with you? Are you from the Harkonnens? The Harkonnens? Bless us, no. Now be silent. 
A dry finger touched his neck and he stilled the involuntary urge to leap away. Good. You passed the first test. Now here's the way of the rest of it. If you withdraw your hand from the box, you die. This is the only rule. Keep your hand in the box and live. Withdraw it and die. If I call out, there'll be servants on you in seconds and you'll die. Servants will not pass your mother who stands guard outside that door. Depend on it. Your mother survived this test. Now it's your turn. Be honored. We seldom administer this to men, children. Curiosity reduced Paul's fear to a manageable level. He heard truth in the old woman's voice, no denying it. If his mother stood guard out there, if this were truly a test, and whatever it was, he knew himself caught in it, trapped by that hand at his neck, the Gom Jabbar. He recalled the response from the litany against fear as his mother had taught him out of the Bene Gesserit rite. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. He felt calmness return. Get on with it, old woman. Old woman? You've courage, and that can't be denied. Well, we shall see, Sarah. You will feel pain in this hand within the box. Pain. But... Withdraw the hand and I'll touch your neck with my gomjabar. The death so swift it's like the fall of the headsman's axe. Withdraw your hand and the gomjabar takes you. Understand? What's in the box? Pain. He felt increased tingling in his hand, pressed his lips tightly together. How could this be a test, he wondered. The tingling became an itch. You've heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap. There's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. The itch became the faintest burning. Why are you doing this? To determine if you're human. Be silent. Paul clenched his left hand into a fist, as the burning sensation increased in the other hand. It mounted slowly, heat upon heat, upon heat, upon heat. He felt the fingernails of his free hand biting the palm. He tried to flex the fingers of the burning hand, but couldn't move them. It burns! Silence! Pain throbbed up his arm. Sweat stood out on his forehead. Every fiber cried out to withdraw the hand from that burning pit. But the Gom Jabbar. Without turning his head, he tried to move his eyes to see that terrible needle poised beside his neck. He sensed that he was breathing in gasps, tried to slow his breaths, and couldn't. Pain. His world emptied of everything except that hand immersed in agony. The ancient face inches away, staring at him. His lips were so dry he had difficulty separating them. The burning. The burning. He thought he could feel skin curling black on that agonized hand. The flesh crisping and dropping away until only charred bones remained. <laughs> 
it stopped. As though a switch had been turned off, the pain stopped. Paul felt his right arm trembling, felt sweat bathing his body. Enough. Cold were hard. No woman child ever withstood that much. I must have wanted you to fail. She leaned back, withdrawing the gom jabar from the side of his neck. Take your hand from the box, young human, and look at it. He fought down an aching shiver, stared at the lightless void where his hand seemed to remain of its own volition. Memory of pain inhibited every movement. Reason told him he would withdraw a blackened stump from that box. Do it. He jerked his hand from the box, stared at it, astonished. Not a mark, no sign of agony on the flesh. He held up the hand, turned it, flexed the fingers. Pain by nerve induction. Can't go around maiming potential humans. There are those who'd give a pretty for the secret of this box, though. She slipped it into the folds of her gown. But the pain. Pain. A human can override any nerve in the body. Paul felt his left hand aching, uncurled the clenched fingers, looked at four bloody marks where fingernails had bitten his palm. He dropped the hand to his side, looked at the old woman. You did that to my mother once? Ever sift sand through a screen? The tangential slash of her question shocked his mind into a higher awareness. Sand through a screen. He nodded. We Bene Gesserit sift people to find the humans. He lifted his right hand, willing the memory of the pain. And that's all there is to it. Pain. I observed you in pain, lad. Pain's merely the axis of the test. Your mother's told you about our ways of observing. I see the signs of her teaching in you. Our test is crisis and observation. He heard the confirmation in her voice. It's truth. She stared at him. He senses truth. Could he be the one? Could he truly be the one? She extinguished the excitement, reminding herself, hope clouds observation. You know when people believe what they say. I know it. The harmonics of ability confirmed by repeated test were in his voice. She heard them. Perhaps you are the Kwisatz Haderach. Sit down, little brother, here at my feet. I prefer to stand. Your mother sat at my feet once. I'm not my mother. You hate us a little, eh? Jessica! The door flew open and Jessica stood there staring hard-eyed into the room. Hardness melted from her as she saw Paul. She managed a faint smile. Jessica, have you ever stopped hating me? I both love and hate you. The hate, that's from pains I must never forget. The love, that's... Just the basic fact. You may come in now, but remain silent. Close that door, and mind it that no one interrupts us. Jessica stepped into the room, closed the door, and stood with her back to it. My son lives, she thought. My son lives and is human. I knew he was, but he lives. Now I can go on living. The door felt hard and real against her back. 
Everything in the room was immediate and pressing against her senses. My son lives. Paul looked at his mother. She told the truth. He wanted to get away alone and think this experience through, but knew he could not leave until he was dismissed. The old woman had gained a power over him. They spoke truth. His mother had undergone this test. There must be terrible purpose in it. The pain and fear had been terrible. He understood terrible purposes. They drove against all odds. They were their own necessity. Paul felt that he had been infected with terrible purpose. He did not know yet what the terrible purpose was. Someday, lad, you too may have to stand outside a door like that. It takes a measure of doing. Paul looked down at the hand that had known pain, then up to the Reverend Mother. The sound of her voice had contained a difference then from any other voice in his experience. The words were outlined in brilliance. There was an edge to them. He felt that any question he might ask her would bring an answer that could lift him out of his flesh world into something greater. Why do you test for humans? To set you free. Free? Once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free. But that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. Thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind. Right out of the Butlerian Jihad and the Orange Catholic Bible. But what the O.C. Bible should have said is, Thou shalt not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind. Have you studied the Mentat in your service? I've studied with Thufir Howard. The Great Revolt took away a crutch. It forced human minds to develop. Schools were started to train human talents. Bene Gesserit schools. We have two chief survivors of those ancient schools, the Bene Gesserit and the Spacing Guild. The Guild, so we think, emphasizes almost pure mathematics. Bene Gesserit performs another function. Politics. Kulwahad. The old woman sent a hard glance at Jessica. I've not told him, your reverence. The reverend mother returned her attention to Paul. You did that on remarkably few clues. Politics indeed. The original Bene Gesserit school was directed by those who saw the need of a thread of continuity in human affairs. They saw there could be no such continuity without separating human stock from animal stock. For breeding purposes. The old woman's words abruptly lost their special sharpness for Paul. He felt an offence against what his mother called his instinct for rightness. It wasn't that Reverend Mother lied to him. She obviously believed what she said. It was something deeper, something tied to his terrible purpose. But my mother tells me many Bene Gesserit of the schools don't know their ancestry. The genetic lines are always in our records. Your mother knows that either she's of Bene Gesserit descent or her stock was acceptable in itself. Then why couldn't she know who her parents are? Some do. Many don't. We might, for example, have wanted to breed her to a close relative, to set up a dominant in some genetic trait. We have many reasons. Again, Paul felt the offence against rightness. You take a lot on yourselves. The Reverend Mother stared at him, wondering. Did I hear criticism in his voice? 
We carry a heavy burden. Paul felt himself coming more and more out of the shock of the test. He leveled a measuring stare at her. You say maybe I'm the... Kwisatz Hadalak. What's that? A human gomjabar? Paul, you mustn't take that tone with... I'll handle this, Jessica. Now, lad, do you know about the truth-sayer drug? You take it to improve your ability to detect falsehood. My mother's told me. Have you ever seen Truth Trance? No. The drug's dangerous, but it gives insight. When a truth-sayer's gifted by the drug, she can look many places in her memory, in her body's memory. We look down so many avenues of the past, but only feminine avenues. Yet there's a place where no truth-sayer can see. We are repelled by it, terrorized. It is said a man will come one day and find in the gift of the drug his inward eye. He will look where we cannot, into both feminine and masculine pasts. Your Kwisatz Hadrak? Yes, the one who can be many places at once. The Kwisatz Hadrak. Many men have tried the drug, so many, but none has succeeded. They tried and failed. All of them? Oh, no. They tried and died. To attempt an understanding of Muad'Dib without understanding his mortal enemies, the Harkonnens, is to attempt seeing truth without knowing falsehood. It is the attempt to see the light without knowing darkness. It cannot be. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. It was a relief globe of a world, partly in shadows, spinning under the impetus of a fat hand that glittered with rings. The globe sat on a free-form stand at one wall of a windowless room, whose other walls presented a patchwork of multicolored scrolls, film books, tapes, and reels. Light glowed in the room from golden balls hanging in mobile suspensor fields. An ellipsoid desk with a top of jade-pink petrified elaka wood stood at the center of the room. Very form suspensor chairs ringed it, two of them occupied. In one sat a dark-haired youth of about sixteen years, round of face and with sullen eyes. The other held a slender, short man with effeminate face. Both youth and man stared at the globe and the man half-hidden in shadows, spinning it. <laughs> there it is, Piter. The biggest man-trap in all history. And the Duke's headed into its jaws. Is it not a magnificent thing that I, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, do? Assuredly, Baron. The fat hand descended onto the globe, stopped the spinning. Now all eyes in the room could focus on the motionless surface and see that it was the kind of globe made for wealthy collectors or planetary governors of the Empire. It had the stamp of imperial handicraft about it. Latitude and longitude lines were laid in with hair-fine platinum wire. The polar caps were insets of finest cloud-milk diamonds. The fat hand moved, tracing details on the surface. I invite you to observe. Observe closely, Piter, and you too, Fadralfa, my darling. From 60 degrees north to 70 degrees south, these exquisite ripples, 
Their coloring, does it not remind you of sweet caramels? And nowhere do you see blue of lakes or rivers or seas and these lovely polar caps so small. Could anyone mistake this place? Arrakis, truly unique. A superb setting for a unique victory. And to think, Baron, the Padishah Emperor believes he's given the Duke your spice planet. How poignant. That's a nonsensical statement. You say this to confuse young Fade Rautha, but it is not necessary to confuse my nephew. The sullen-faced youth stirred in his chair, smoothed a wrinkle in the black leotards he wore. He sat upright as a discreet tapping sounded at the door in the wall behind him. Piter unfolded from his chair, crossed to the door, cracked it wide enough to accept a message cylinder. He closed the door, unrolled the cylinder, and scanned it. <laughs> well? The fool answered us, Baron. Whenever did an Atreides refuse the opportunity for a gesture? Well, what does he say? He's most uncouth, Baron. Addresses you as Harkonnen. No sire et cher cousin, no title, nothing. It's a good name. What does dear Leto say? He says, your offer of a meeting is refused. I have oft times met your treachery, and this all men know. And? He says, the art of Conley still has admirers in the Empire. He signs it Duke Leto of Arrakis. <laughs> of Arrakis? Oh my, this is almost too rich. Be silent, Piter. Conley, is it? Vendetta, eh? And he uses the nice old word so rich in tradition to be sure I know he means it. You made the peace gesture. The forms have been obeyed. For a mentat, you talk too much, Piter. And he thought, I must do away with that one soon. He has almost outlived his usefulness. The Baron stared across the room at his mentat assassin, seeing the feature about him that most people noticed first. The eyes. The shaded slits of blue within blue. The eyes without any white in them at all. A grin flashed across Piter's face. It was like a mask grimace beneath those eyes like holes. But Baron, never has revenge been more beautiful. It is to see a plan of the most exquisite treachery, to make Leto exchange Caladan for Dune, and without alternative because the Emperor orders it. How waggish of you. You have a flux of the mouth, Piter. But I am happy, my Baron. Whereas you, you are touched by jealousy. Piter. Aha, Baron. Is it not regrettable you were unable to devise this delicious scheme by yourself? Someday I will have you strangled, Piter. Of a certainty, Baron. Enfant. But a kind act is never lost, eh? Have you been chewing verite or samutsa, Piter? Truth without fear surprises the Baron. Piter's face drew down into a caricature of a frowning mask. Aha! But you see, Baron, I know as a mentat when you will send the executioner. You will hold back just so long as I am useful. To move sooner would be wasteful, and I'm yet of much use. I know what it is you learned from that lovely dune planet. 
Waste not. True, Baron? The Baron continued to stare at Piter. Fade Rautha squirmed in his chair. These wrangling fools, he thought. My uncle cannot talk to his mentat without arguing. Do they think I've nothing to do except listen to their arguments? Fade, I told you to listen and learn when I invited you in here. Are you learning? Yes, uncle. Sometimes I wonder about Piter. I cause pain out of necessity, but he... I swear he takes a positive delight in it. For myself, I can feel pity toward the poor Duke Leto. Dr. Yui will move against him soon, and that'll be the end of all the Atreides. But surely Leto will know whose hand directed the pliant doctor. And knowing that will be a terrible thing. Then why haven't you directed the doctor to slip a kinjal between his ribs quietly and efficiently? You talk of pity, but... The Duke must know when I encompass his doom. And the other great houses must learn of it. The knowledge will give them pause. I'll gain a bit more room to maneuver. The necessity is obvious, but I don't have to like it. Room to maneuver. Already you have the Emperor's eyes on you, Baron. You move too boldly. One day the Emperor will send a legion or two of his Sardaukar down here onto Gady Prime, and that'll be an end to the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. You'd like to see that, wouldn't you, Piter? You'd enjoy seeing the core of Sardaukar pillage through my cities and sack this castle. You'd truly enjoy that. Does the Baron need to ask? You should have been a Bashar of the core. You're too interested in blood and pain. Perhaps I was too quick with my promise of the spoils of Arrakis. Piter took five curiously mincing steps into the room, stopped directly behind Fade Rather. There was a tight air of tension in the room, and the youth looked up at Piter with a worried frown. Do not toy with Piter, Baron. You promised me the Lady Jessica. You promised her to me. For what, Piter? For pain? Piter stared at him, dragging out the silence. Fadrather moved his suspenser chair to one side. Uncle, do I have to stay? You said you'd... My darling Fade Rautha grows impatient. Patience, Fade. What of the Dukeling, the child Paul, my dear Piter? The trap will bring him to you, Baron. That's not my question. You'll recall that you predicted the Bene Gesserit witch would bear a daughter to the Duke. You were wrong, eh, Mentat? I'm not often wrong, Baron. Give me that. I'm not often wrong. And you know yourself these Bene Gesserit bear mostly daughters. Even the Emperor's consort had produced only females. Uncle, you said there'd be something important here for me to... Listen to my nephew. He aspires to rule my barony, yet he cannot rule himself. The Baron stirred beside the globe. A shadow among shadows. Well then, Fade Rautha Harkonnen. I summoned you here hoping to teach you a bit of wisdom. Have you observed our good Mentat? You should have learned something from this exchange. But, Uncle... A most efficient Mentat, Piter, wouldn't you say, Fade? Yes, but... Ah, indeed, but... But he consumes too much spice, eats it like candy, look at his eyes. He might have come directly from the Arakeen labor pool. Efficient, Piter, but he's still emotional and prone to passionate outbursts. Efficient, Piter, but he still can err. D 
Did you call me in here to impair my efficiency with criticism, Baron? Impair your efficiency? You know me better, Piter. I wish only for my nephew to understand the limitations of a Mentat. Are you already training my replacement? Replace you? Why, Piter, where could I find another Mentat with your cunning and venom? The same place you found me, Baron. Perhaps I should at that. You do seem a bit unstable lately. And the spice you eat. Are my pleasures too expensive, Baron? Do you object to them? My dear Piter, your pleasures are what tie you to me. How could I object to that? I merely wish my nephew to observe this about you. Then I'm on display. Shall I dance? Shall I perform my various functions for the eminent Fade Rauther? Precisely. You are on display. Now be silent. The Baron glanced at Fade Rauther, noting his nephew's lips, the full and pouting look of them, the Harkonnen genetic marker now twisted slightly in amusement. This is a Mentat, Fade. It has been trained and conditioned to perform certain duties. The fact that it's encased in a human body, however, must not be overlooked. A serious drawback, that. I sometimes think the ancients with their thinking machines had the right idea. They were toys compared to me. You yourself, Baron, could outperform those machines. Perhaps. Ah, well. <sighs> now, Piter, outline for my nephew the salient features of our campaign against the House of Atreides. Function as a Mentat for us, if you please. Baron, I've warned you not to trust one so young with this information. My observations I'll have... be the judge of this. I give you an order, Mentat. Perform one of your various functions. So be it. Piter straightened, assuming an odd attitude of dignity, as though it were another mask, but this time clothing his entire body. In a few days' standard, the entire household of the Duke Leto will embark on a Spacing Guild liner for Arrakis. The Guild will deposit them at the city of Arrakeen rather than at our city of Carthag. The Duke's Mentat, Thufir Hawat, will have concluded rightly that Arrakeen is easier to defend. Listen carefully, Fade. Observe the plans within plans within plans. Fade Rather nodded, thinking... This is more like it. The old monster is letting me in on secret things at last. He must really mean me to be his heir. There are several tangential possibilities. I indicate that House Atreides will go to Arrakis. We must not, however, ignore the possibility the Duke has contracted with the Guild to remove him to a place of safety outside the system. Others, in like circumstances, have become renegade houses, taking family atomics and shields and fleeing beyond the Imperium. The Duke's too proud a man for that. It is a possibility. The ultimate effect for us would be the same, however. No, it would not. I must have him dead and his line ended. That's the high probability. There are certain preparations that indicate when a house is going renegade. The Duke appears to be doing none of these things. So, get on with it, Piter. At Arakeen, the Duke and his family will occupy the residency, lately the home of Count and Lady Fenring. The ambassador to the smugglers. Ambassador to what? Your uncle makes a joke. 
He calls Count Fenring ambassador to the smugglers, indicating the Emperor's interest in smuggling operations on Arrakis. Fade Rauther turned a puzzled stare on his uncle. Why? Don't be so dense, Fade. As long as the Guild remains effectively outside Imperial control, how could it be otherwise? How else could spies and assassins move about? Fade Rauther's mouth made a soundless, oh. We've arranged diversions at the Residency. There'll be an attempt on the life of the Atreides' heir, an attempt which could succeed. Pites, are you indicating that- I indicated accidents can happen, and the attempt must appear valid. Ah, but the lad has such a sweet young body. Of course, he's potentially more dangerous than the father. With that witch mother training him, a cursed woman. Ah, well, please continue, Piter. Howat will have divined that we have an agent planted on him. The obvious suspect is Dr. Yui, who is indeed our agent. But Howat has investigated and found that our doctor is a Sook school graduate with Imperial conditioning, supposedly safe enough to minister even to the Emperor. Great store is set on Imperial conditioning. It's assumed that ultimate conditioning cannot be removed without killing the subject. However, as someone once observed, given the right lever, you can move a planet. We found the lever that moved the doctor. How? Fade Rauther found this a fascinating subject. Everyone knew you couldn't subvert Imperial conditioning. Another time. Continue, Piter. In place of Yui, we'll drag a most interesting suspect across Howard's path. The very audacity of this suspect will recommend her to Howard's attention. Her? The Lady Jessica herself. Is it not sublime? Howard's mind will be so filled with this prospect, it'll impair his function as a mentat. He may even try to kill her. But I don't think he'll be able to carry it off. You don't want him to, huh? Don't distract me. While Howat's occupied with the Lady Jessica, we'll divert him further with uprisings in a few garrison towns and the like. These will be put down. The Duke must believe he's gaining a measure of security. Then, when the moment is ripe, we'll signal Yui and move in with our major force. Uh... Go ahead. Tell him all of it. We'll move in strengthened by two legions of Sardaukar, disguised in Harkonnen livery. Sardaukar. Fade Rather focused his mind on the dread Imperial troops. The killers without mercy, the soldier fanatics of the Padishah Emperor. You see how I trust you, Fade? No hint of this must ever reach another great house, else the Lansrad might unite against the Imperial House and there'd be chaos. The main point is this. Since House Harkonnen is being used to do the Imperial dirty work, we've gained a true advantage. It's a dangerous advantage, to be sure, but if used cautiously, we'll bring House Harkonnen greater wealth than that of any other house in the Imperium. You have no idea how much wealth is involved, Fade. Not in your wildest imaginings. To begin, we'll have an irrevocable directorship in the Chom Company. Fade Rauther nodded. Wealth was the thing. 
Chom was the key to wealth, each noble house dipping from the company's coffers whatever it could under the power of the directorships. Those Chom directorships. They were the real evidence of political power in the Imperium, passing with the shifts of voting strength within the Lanthrot as it balanced itself against the Emperor and his supporters. The Duke Leto may attempt to flee to the new Fremen scum along the desert's edge, or he may try to send his family into that imagined security. But that path is blocked by one of His Majesty's agents, the planetary ecologist. You may remember him, Kynes. Fade remembers him. Get on with it. You do not drool very prettily, Baron. Get on with it. I command you. If matters go as planned, House Harkonnen will have a subfief on Arrakis within a standard year. Your uncle will have dispensation of that fief. His own personal agent will rule on Arrakis. More profits. Indeed. And the Baron thought, it's only just. We're the ones who tamed Arrakis, except for the few mongrel Fremen hiding in the skirts of the desert and some tame smugglers bound to the planet almost as tightly as the native labor pool. And the great houses will know that the Baron has destroyed the Atreides. They will know. They will know. Loveliest of all is that the Duke will know too. He knows now. He can already feel the trap. It's true the Duke knows. He could not help but know. More's the pity. The Baron moved out and away from the globe of Arrakis. As he emerged from the shadows, his figure took on dimension, grossly and immensely fat, and with subtle bulges beneath folds of his dark robes to reveal that all this fat was sustained partly by portable suspensors harnessed to his flesh. He might weigh 200 standard kilos in actuality, but his feet would carry no more than 50 of them. I am hungry. The Baron rubbed his protruding lips with a beringed hand, stared down at Fade Rather through fat enfolded eyes. Send for food, my darling. We will eat before we retire. Thus spoke Saint Aaliyah of the Knife. The Reverend Mother must combine the seductive wiles of a courtesan with the untouchable majesty of a virgin goddess, holding these attributes in tension so long as the powers of her youth endure. For when youth and beauty have gone, she will find that the place between, once occupied by tension, has become a wellspring of cunning and resourcefulness. From Muad'Dib, Family Commentaries, by the Princess Irulan. Well, Jessica, what have you to say for yourself? asked the Reverend Mother. It was near sunset at Castle Caladan on the day of Paul's ordeal. The two women were alone in Jessica's morning room, while Paul waited in the adjoining soundproofed meditation chamber. Jessica stood facing the south windows. She saw, and yet did not see, the evening's banked colours across meadow and river. She heard, and yet did not hear the Reverend Mother's question. There had been another ordeal once, so many years ago. 
a skinny girl with hair the colour of bronze, her body tortured by the winds of puberty, had entered the study of the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, Proctor Superior of the Bene Gesserit School on Wallach Nine. Jessica looked down at her right hand, flexed the fingers, remembering the pain, the terror, the anger. Poor Paul, she whispered. I asked you a question, Jessica. The old woman's voice was snappish, demanding. What? Oh. Jessica tore her attention away from the past, faced the Reverend Mother who sat with back to the stone wall between the two west windows. What do you want me to say? What do I want you to say? What do I want you to say? The old voice carried a tone of cruel mimicry. So I had a son, Jessica flared, and she knew she was being goaded into this anger deliberately. You were told to bear only daughters to the Atreides. It meant so much to him, Jessica pleaded. And you, in your pride, thought you could produce the Kwisatz Haderach. Jessica lifted her chin. I sensed the possibility. You thought only of your duke's desire for a son, the old woman snapped. And his desires don't figure in this. An Atreides daughter could have been wed to a Harkonnen heir and sealed the breach. You've hopelessly complicated matters. We may lose both bloodlines now. You're not infallible, Jessica said. She braved the steady stare from the old eyes. Presently the old woman muttered, What's done is done. I vowed never to regret my decision, Jessica said. How noble, the Reverend Mother sneered. No regrets. We shall see when you're a fugitive with a price on your head and every man's hand turned against you to seek your life and the life of your son. Jessica paled. Is there no alternative? Alternative? A Bene Gesserit should ask that? I ask only what you see in the future with your superior abilities. I see in the future what I've seen in the past. You well know the pattern of our affairs, Jessica. The race knows its own mortality and fears stagnation of its heredity. It's in the bloodstream, the urge to mingle genetic strains without plan. The Imperium, the Chome Company, all the great houses, they are but bits of flotsam in the path of the flood. Chome, Jessica muttered. I suppose it's already decided how they'll redivide the spoils of Arrakis. What is Chome but the weather vane of our times? The old woman said. The Emperor and his friends now command fifty-nine point six five percent of the Chome directorship's votes. Certainly they smell profits, and likely as others smell those same profits, his voting strength will increase. This is the pattern of history, girl. That's certainly what I need right now, Jessica said. A review of history. Don't be facetious, girl. You know as well as I do what forces surround us. We've a three-point civilization. The imperial household balanced against the federated great houses of the Lanthrot, and between them, the guild, with its damnable monopoly on interstellar transport. In politics, the tripod is the most unstable of all structures. It'd be bad enough without the complication of a feudal trade culture which turns its back on most science. Jessica spoke bitterly. Chips in the path of the flood, 
and this chip here, this is the Duke Leto, and this one's his son, and this one's— Oh, shut up, girl! You entered this with full knowledge of the delicate edge you walked. I am Benny Gesserit. I exist only to serve, Jessica quoted. Truth, the old woman said, and all we can hope for now is to prevent this from erupting into general conflagration to salvage what we can of the key bloodlines. Jessica closed her eyes, feeling tears press out beneath the lids. She fought down the inner trembling, the outer trembling, the uneven breathing, the ragged pulse, the sweating of the palms. Presently, she said, I'll pay for my own mistake. And your son will pay with you. I'll shield him as well as I'm able. Shield? the old woman snapped. You well know the weakness there. Shield your son too much, Jessica, and he'll not grow strong enough to fulfill any destiny. Jessica turned away, looked out the window at the gathering darkness. Is it really that terrible? This planet of Arrakis? Bad enough, but not all bad. The Missionaria Protectiva has been in there and softened it up somewhat. The Reverend Mother heaved herself to her feet, straightened a fold in her gown. Call the boy in here. I must be leaving soon. Must you? The old woman's voice softened. Jessica, girl, I wish I could stand in your place and take your sufferings. But each of us must make her own path. I know. You're as dear to me as any of my own daughters. But I cannot let that interfere with duty. I understand the necessity. What you did, Jessica, and why you did it, we both know. But kindness forces me to tell you there's little chance your lad will be the Bene Gesserit totality. You mustn't let yourself hope too much. Jessica shook tears from the corners of her eyes. It was an angry gesture. You make me feel like a little girl again, reciting my first lesson. She forced the words out. Humans must never submit to animals. A dry sob shook her. In a low voice, she said, I've been so lonely. It should be one of the tests, the old woman said. Humans are almost always lonely. Now summon the boy. He's had a long, frightening day. But he's had time to think and remember. And I must ask the other questions about these dreams of his. Jessica nodded, went to the door of the meditation chamber, opened it. Paul, come in now, please. Paul emerged with a stubborn slowness. He stared at his mother as though she were a stranger. Weariness veiled his eyes when he glanced at the Reverend Mother, but this time he nodded to her, the nod one gives an equal. He heard his mother close the door behind him. Young man, the old woman said, let's return to this dream business. What do you want? Do you dream every night? Not dreams worth remembering. I can remember every dream, but some are worth remembering and some aren't. How do you know the difference? I just know it. The old woman glanced at Jessica, back to Paul. What did you dream last night? Was it worth remembering? 
Yes. Paul closed his eyes. I dreamed a cavern, and water, and a girl there, very skinny with big eyes. Her eyes are all blue, no whites in them. I talk to her and tell her about you, about seeing the Reverend Mother on Caladan. Paul opened his eyes. And the thing you tell this strange girl about seeing me? Did it happen today? Paul thought about this, then... Yes. I tell the girl you came and put a stamp of strangeness on me. Stamp of strangeness. The old woman breathed, and again she shot a glance at Jessica, returned her attention to Paul. Tell me truly now, Paul, do you often have dreams of things that happen afterward exactly as you dreamed them? Yes. And I've dreamed about that girl before. Oh. You know her? I will know her. Tell me about her. Again, Paul closed his eyes. We're in a little place in some rocks where it's sheltered. It's almost night, but it's hot, and I can see patches of sand out of an opening in the rocks. We're waiting for something, for me to go meet some people. And she's frightened, but trying to hide it from me, and I'm excited. And she says, tell me about the waters of your home world, Usul. Paul opened his eyes. Isn't that strange? My home world's Caladan. I'd never even heard of a planet called Usul. Is there more to this dream? Jessica prompted. Yes. But maybe she was calling me Usul, Paul said. I just thought of that. Again he closed his eyes. She asks me to tell her about the waters, and I take her hand, and I say I'll tell her a poem, and I tell her the poem, but I have to explain some of the words, like beach, and surf, and seaweed, and seagulls. What poem? the Reverend Mother asked. Paul opened his eyes. It's just one of Gurney Halleck's tone poems for sad times. Behind Paul, Jessica began to recite. I remember salt smoke from beach fire, and shadows under the pines, solid, clean, fixed, seagulls perched at the tip of land, white upon green, and a wind comes through the pines to sway the shadows. The seagulls spread their wings, lift, and fill the sky with screeches, and I hear the wind blowing across our beach, and the surf, and I see that our fire has scorched the seaweed. That's the one, Paul said. The old woman stared at Paul, then, Young man, as a proctor of the Bene Gesserit, I seek the Kwisatz Haderach, the male who truly can become one of us. Your mother sees this possibility in you, but she sees with the eyes of a mother. Possibility I see, too, but no more. She fell silent, and Paul saw that she wanted him to speak. He waited her out. Presently she said, As you will, then. You've depths in you, that I'll grant. May I go now? he asked. Don't you want to hear what the Reverend Mother can tell you about the Kwisatz Haderach? Jessica asked. She said those who tried for it died. But I can help you with a few hints at why they failed, the Reverend Mother said. 
She talks of hints, Paul thought. She doesn't really know anything. And he said, Hint, then. And be damned to me? She smiled wryly, a criss-cross of wrinkles in the old face. Very well. That which submits rules. He felt astonishment. She was talking about such elementary things as tension within meaning. Did she think his mother had taught him nothing at all? That's a hint, he asked. We're not here to bandy words or quibble over their meaning, the old woman said. The willow submits to the wind and prospers until one day it is many willows, a wall against the wind. This is the willow's purpose. Paul stared at her. She said purpose, and he felt the word buffet him, reinfecting him with terrible purpose. He experienced a sudden anger at her, fatuous old witch with her mouth full of platitudes. "'You think I could be this Kwisatz Haderach?' he said. "'You talk about me, but you haven't said one thing about what we can do to help my father. I've heard you talking to my mother. You talk as though my father were dead. Well, he isn't.' If there were a thing to be done for him, we'd have done it, the old woman growled. We may be able to salvage you. Doubtful, but possible. For your father, nothing. When you've learned to accept that as a fact, you've learned a real Bene Gesserit lesson. Paul saw how the words shook his mother. He glared at the old woman. How could she say such a thing about his father? What made her so sure? His mind seethed with resentment. The Reverend Mother looked at Jessica. You've been training him in the way. I've seen the signs of it. I'd have done the same in your shoes and devil take the rules. Jessica nodded. Now I caution you, said the old woman, to ignore the regular order of training. His own safety requires the voice. He already has a good start in it, but we both know how much more he needs, and that desperately. She stepped close to Paul, stared down at him. Goodbye, young human. I hope you make it. But if you don't, well, we shall yet succeed. Once more she looked at Jessica. A flicker sign of understanding passed between them. Then the old woman swept from the room, her robes hissing, with not another backward glance. The room and its occupants already were shut from her thoughts. But Jessica had caught one glimpse of the Reverend Mother's face as she turned away. There had been tears on the seamed cheeks. The tears were more unnerving than any other word or sign that had passed between them this day. <laughs>